Sit Rep goes to sea on board the Queen, an old sea lord and a new sea lord. Hope is not a reliable method of ensuring capability availability when a crisis erupts. We've also got the biggest ship the Navy's ever built, a couple of old sea dogs and a bottle of whiskey. Well, we start in the Middle East today. The biggest threat to world stability, Saudi Arabia, has deployed 30,000 troops to its border with Iraq to plug the hole left by the Iraqi army that's been moved to counter-incursions by Sunni Islamists. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is increasingly worried that it may be the next target for ISIS, the Sunni rebellion in Iraq. Joining me this week are Eric Grove, Professor of Naval History and Senior Fellow in Security Studies at Liverpool Hope University and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to you both. Uh, Hello. Professor Grove, welcome back to the programme. Uh, what's happening? Nice to be back. Well, what's happening here in Saudi Arabia? Is it going on the defensive exactly? Well, perhaps, but the Saudis, there have been reports, in fact, of uh, the head of Saudi intelligence having various contacts within Iraq with Sunni militias who have actually been fighting, at least for the time being, with ISIS. And that was thought to be the best way in, in Riyadh of sort of controlling what ISIS does. But clearly, uh, there are great differences between ISIS and, and, the, and the Saudis, not least, of course, if al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, sees himself as the new caliph. I think, king, I think the king of Saudi Arabia will have something to, to say about that. So the Saudis are playing something of a double game, one might mm. say as usual, but on the other hand they are clearly concerned and they don't want ISIS forces crossing the border. Uh, just to go on, uh, speak about what you mentioned there, the caliph, uh, this re relates to the caliphate that's been declared by ISIS this week, Christopher. Just explain exactly what a caliphate is and why it's important this has been declared now. A caliphate is a sort of state, uh, at least a province, and so that when ISIS it's always said that it intends eventually um, that Iraq itself would be a caliphate. In other words, its own Sunni state. And that's why it's important now. It's important because it feels, A, strong enough to be able to say that and feels assured to say that. And it also is the, is the final statement. And mm -hmm. in these Middle East affairs, there's always the final statement before, before you move on to sort of saying, now we're going to do it. And it scares the life out of a lot of people who are living in Iraq. And don't forget, also in Syria, because ISIS is about the conflict in, in Syria as much as it is in Iraq. And Eric, um, this declaration of a caliphate, far from actually unifying people, has actually created schisms in the, in the area, hasn't it? Well, of course, I mean, you have the basic Shia-Sunni split um, in Iraq. Uh, 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 the, that split goes back and almost to the to the beginnings of Islam. And uh, you, you, you could argue, if you wanted to be pedantic, that actually al-Baghdadi should have uh, um, uh, said he created an emirate because a caliphate is one step up. You're a successor to the prophet. And this shows the ambitions. Maps have appeared... I can't believe ISIS. you're actually picking him up on how he should have done it in terms of academia. <laughs> his, yeah, well, well on, his, on his sort of... On, a, on his Muslim ideology. But the, but the caliphate they're talking about stretches from Spain on the one hand to India on the other. And it's harking back to what, what the Muslims would mm. like to have had in the great days of Islam. So his ambitions are pretty, are pretty great. And they're also based entirely on what happened in 632, when yep. Muhammad died, and the, the, the great split between one group, which were the Sunnis... The succession. ...and one group, which were the Shias, and which is what we're seeing in Iraq at the moment. And the idea of the caliphate was that the Sunnis were saying 
that the four caliphates they should decide the uh, the succession <coughs> and that battle is 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 still going on uh, Absolutely. let's just go back to the situation in Saudi Arabia where is the Iraqi army what's going on there well i think i think we've got to be very careful to say uh, uh, the saudis have moved people to the border therefore they're worried in fact what's happened is the iraqis have moved uh, two and a half divisions in order to combat isis and therefore, that's left a gap as far as the, the Saudis are concerned. And so the Saudis are moving up to fill that gap. And it's a gap in, in depth. If you can imagine a triangle, and you've got uh, the triangle, and the, and the base of the triangle is at that border, and then you've got them coming back. It's a classic style of deployment of, say, two, maybe three divisions, and that's what they're doing. And, Eric, how secure is that border? Well, uh, it, it, I think the Saudi armed forces would fight a good deal harder than the Iraqi armed forces did. Uh, and uh, ISIS might try to cross it. But I think ISIS has its hands pretty full in Syria and Iraq at the moment. Mm. Uh, Christopher, um, what would it mean if Saudi, the world's biggest oil producer, does become unstable? Uh, it is unstable in some ways. But, you see, that's when you get the bigger picture. The United States, for example, could not allow the Saudis become unstable and here you've got a basic problem if you think who's supporting the rebels in syria and don't forget assad in syria the president is shia who is supporting the the sunni rebels the saudis are why would the saudis do that because they do not want the 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 the, the, the shias to spread any further mm. who are the shias who are the shias in iran a threat to saudi arabia 93% of Iran are Shias, the threat to Saudi Arabia. And therefore, the Saudis themselves feel that the ISIS, if they get the chance, could actually spread their influence and pick up a lot of uh, territory in Saudi Arabia. There's one interesting part of it, and that is a lot of the young princes in Saudi Arabia, the young princes, are actually supporting ISIS. And, and remember where Osama bin Laden came from as well, Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Mm -hmm. Closer to home, security being stepped up at British airports amid fears Islamist terrorists working on a bomb that could go undetected by current security measures. Officials in Washington believe two branches of al-Qaeda in Syria and Yemen are working on new devices. Uh, what are these devices, Christopher? Do you know much well, about them? Well, the idea is, uh, you know, when, you, when, when we go through uh, an airport security, what happens, you go through, you think you've got everything in the trays, you walk through and you left the keys in the pocket so it goes beep, and they do a body search. It's exactly the same thing when trying to move in parts of, of a weapon system. But remember, uh, this is slightly exaggerated the importance so that it can be easily illustrated to the general public. What they've done, or what they believe to have done, is replace some of the metallic parts in an explosive with plastic parts, which are harder to detect. But the classic way of getting a weapon system on board is not to take the whole weapon system, is that you have three or four guys uh, who will take a bit each. The other thing is that people that are going on board more and more have American or British passports, and therefore they're not scrutinised. So if, if that's the case, Eric, what is the best way of trying to reduce the risk of an ever, another explosive on a plane? Well, I, I suspect a lot of more people are going to have to take their shoes off, which is always rather annoying, but it's thought that some of this is uh, perhaps the, uh, but also, a good way of... A point that's been Sorry, made, it was made to me earlier this morning, is, is just the fact that, you know, creating big crowds because of lots of security checks at the airport is in itself a new security risk. 
I think I think there's a great deal in that. I mean, you always have the problem in facing a terrorist threat, and I go on about this interminably, that in fact you have to decide how far you take extra security measures and how far that is a victory for the terrorist in itself, in that uh, it's creating a lot of trouble, it's making a considerable political impact. I think probably we've got the compromise about right. I, nobody gets more annoyed at airport security checks than I do, but then I keep telling myself, come on, this is necessary. Mm. So... Um, uh, but I think that they will, as Chris has just said, be looking very carefully at electronic equipment, rather more carefully, and that seems to be the key to this. New kinds of explosives, new, uh, new kinds of electronic control mechanisms. Especially, especially as now we're moving to the next stage, where uh, would-be terrorists or mm. terrorists are starting with the idea of swallowing mm. uh, any, any devices. And so they're rather like drug mules. Um, that is the next stage. Well, this week the, the Ministry of Defence has published its Global Strategic Trends Study, a report that predicts the way the world could look in 30 years' time. It says technology will be the biggest driver of change in both a positive and a negative way. Something a bit odd about this. So the MOD saying that in the next 30 years, technology will be more complicated, terrorists will be everywhere, and using weapons such as viruses. China's military bigger than ever. Christopher, what do you make of what's been said this week? Uh, they're trying to second guess 30 years' time and they're it's not doing it very well. Well, the point is, you've, you, you know, you've given the list there, you can add some more to it, that NATO's got to pay more money, they said, um, and that the United Kingdom's going to be hit by cyber attacks. I mean, almost every other week we're talking about NATO, United Kingdom's going to hit more cyber attacks, there's going to be viruses, there's going to be new technologies, etc. What we're talking about is now technology and trying to see how it will develop into 30 years' time. And we're not there yet. The other thing to remember, you can pile all the capabilities into terrorists and, and rogue states and also people that might become, uh, become enemies. You can put it all in and say, right, they're their capabilities. What you can't do is guess their intentions. Uh, Eric, did anything stick out to you in this uh, study? Well, it seems to be, to some extent, rather old-fashioned, actually, that they're concentrating, as Chris has just said, very much on terrorism, very much on the threat of the last war. And I think we are going through a major geopolitical change at the moment. Russia is on the march in, in the east. It is threatening countries that are in NATO and which we have to protect because they are. China is growing in power. It is, there is a growing confrontation between the United States and China. There is the potential for confrontation between India and China. It's back to the future. And I think that in, in the next 20, 30 years, I mean, after all, who would have predicted two years ago that Russia would be taking over Crimea? But I think one can go back to a very general lesson of history, that states will tend to have different interests, they will conflict, and there is a significant chance of interstate conflict, and the better prepared we are in the West to, to, to deal with that, the greater our deterrent to it taking place. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the Queen and I have decided this week's all about the Navy. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The first Sea Lord, Admiral George Zambellis, gave the Naval Threat Lecture in Whitehall on Tuesday. He said, we need two aircraft carriers, not one. We need more money. And the UK relies so much on the protection of the sea lanes that it would come to a standstill in times of tension if the Navy were reduced any more. Here are a couple of points he was making. Credibility also hinges on the carrier being available when the need arises. Hope is not a reliable method of ensuring capability availability when a crisis erupts. That is why we need the effects of a UK carrier. It's the wrong moment to find out that nothing happens when you push the carrier button. Christopher, what do you think about what he said? Well, the first thing that Sam Bellis 
George Zambellis is an interesting guy. He's the first 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 sea lord, I think, Eric, the first one that was ever can drive a helicopter. He was in the uh, fleet arm driving helicopters. You can hear he has the authority and he has the he has the grip of the navy more than any other first sea lord, I think. Uh, since probably the late... You're a fan, period. let's say. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of what he's trying to do. He is saying in public what a lot of them didn't say and they should have said at the time. The last person to be as good as this, I think, was probably Terry Lewin, and that's going back to the 1970s, 80s. But the other thing that he's talking about is thinking of the Navy as a whole, that you start cutting it back, you're going to be messing around because, I mean, we're going to be talking later on and everybody's going to be talking tomorrow about the... Uh, about the new aircraft carrier, um, it can take 15, 20 years from conception to actually delivering a ship. He's saying, look, you start messing around. We can't just say, oh, that wasn't a good idea. We'll have another crack at it, like the army are doing with their reservists. Mm, well, they haven't done it yet, have they? No, but they will, if they listen to George Zambellis, they'll get the message. Mm, uh, uh, Eric, um, the Trident Commission has reported this week, and I suppose they were going to say what was expected, or they have said what was expected. Well, it, in a way, it wasn't what was ex uh, expected, because it came out of BASIC, and BASIC is basically an organisation, sorry about the, the play on <laughs> words there, an organisation which is funded by what are normally regarded as peace organisations. And mm. they've been very, very brave. They got together an interesting group of people, including the Chancellor of my university, Lord, Lord Guthrie, mm. and they came up with some very interesting and I thought very cogent arguments for, for why Britain should retain an independent nuclear ca uh, capability and how, how a reduced... Trident Force is probably the best way of doing that. But they accepted it was work in process, even though they, they grudgingly said, accepted that it was needed. Well, perhaps, you know, one can talk of reductions. In fact, we're talking of reductions anyway. We're only talking about, uh, I think, eight-tube submarines as opposed to 16-tube submarines, although, according to some reports, our current Trident submarines don't carry any, any more than eight missiles on their, on their normal cruise. But that probably is the cheapest and most effective way. Remember, we get, we get an enormous bargain. We get the missiles from an American stockpile. We have a right to the part of the American stockpile. We actually own a bit of it. Uh, and they are loaded into our submarines and they come over to Britain and the warheads go on currently in Scotland. But that's another story. Mm -hmm. um, and we have full operational control over that force. It's flexible. According to reports, there are different yields, different numbers of warheads. And it gives us a capacity to retaliate to a wide range of, of contingencies and to prevent a country like Russia, for example, engaging in nuclear blackmail. Would it be easy for us to defend Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania if the, if the danger that if we did we, we, uh, we would suffer uh, a nuclear attack against which we couldn't retaliate? Christopher? Um, the important thing about this decision on Trident is nobody has to make it for three or four years yet and therefore it's all theoretical at the moment. Now, the aircraft carrier itself, HMS Queen Elizabeth, uh, tomorrow she gets named. Building a ship like this is a long process, more than a decade sometimes, two, two between deciding you need a carrier and getting it into service. This one won't be in service for years. Admiral Lord West was the first Sea Lord during the early planning stages and before any contracts were signed. Our reporter James Hurst asked him about his involvement. Well, certainly while I was first Sea Lord, I was uh, very heavily involved in ensuring that the the programme remained on track because we're always looking sort of ten years ahead and you have to have the, uh, the money within the programme to actually pay for the, uh, pay for the work, at least even before you order it. And there are certain long lead things that are done. There were three attempts to get rid of the carrier out of the programme and I managed to stop that happening. Um, and of course it was quite clear that the amount of money required was going to be more than the initial amount that was bid for back in 1998. Um, I'm afraid during those times all the services used to put in a bid for things with a slightly lesser price tag than it was really going to cost. 
you knew that when when this was going on that that it was a, an underbid effect. I mean, I was, I was uh, when the, the bid went in, it was 97, 98, I was just finishing as commander of the UK task group, and it was in the SDR. SDR. Um, it was quite clear to me the amount of money that was uh, being talked about for it was not enough to pay for two um, large carriers. And that's exactly the same as with the Typhoon programme, which I think was going to cost £10 billion, it cost £96 billion. Um, so we found that with a, a lot of people, I'm afraid, in, in historically, and that's got to stop, and it has stopped, I think. I, I mean... Do taxpayers therefore have a, a, a right to be a, a little chuffed off with the, the leaders of our armed forces for, for these things spiralling? I, I think uh, the system of putting in bids which were clearly not enough money was wrong and that's changed. Um, everyone did it, as I say. You know, the Typhoon programme I think is something like ten times more expensive than everyone thought it was going to be. The carriers have come out a bit more expensive than I expected, not much, and that was really because of the delays... Um, put in there to move money into another year. That cost us a big chunk of money. And the other one was because of the decision to try and make it cats and traps and not Stovall and then going back again to Stovall. I was looking at some uh, footage, I think, from 2005 earlier, uh, when you were first Sea Lord, of you talking really enthusiastically. Um, if someone had told you then that you know it would be delayed as much as it has been that we would be without carrier strike for a decade, which I know was a separate decision, but it's, it's, it's sort of part of the whole, you know, it looks like a bit of a farrago to people. If someone had told you that it, it would have become that much of a farrago, how would you have felt back then? Well, the cancellation of Ark Royal, the scrapping of Ark Royal and getting rid of the Harriers was a terrible error. And that has meant we've had a long gap without uh, a carrier capability. So far, we've been jolly lucky. They would have been very useful in Libya, but we've been extremely lucky as a nation that we haven't needed it. Uh, the new carrier programme coming in is great news. Um, yes, there have been delays. One delay, as I say, was because um, the Labour government delayed it 12 months because they wanted to move money into another year. That costs money. The other one was because of the change of cats and traps. That costs money. Um, both of those things I'd rather hadn't happened. But actually, I'm delighted that we're now getting what is an amazing ship, in fact, amazing two ships, and what we've got to do is run two of them. How delayed is this from what, from what you expected back in 2005, 2006? Well, I think about that time we were talking in terms of having it operating this year with its aircraft and everything, and that clearly hasn't happened. But I can't say it surprises me with the complexity of this and the aircraft programme. There are so many bits that have all got to come together. And still, for example, we've got to get the... Uh, the uh, crow's nest system which is the airborne early warning sorted out I mean it, it is a highly complex thing but it's wonderful to see the carrier there, the joint strike fighter program is on track now um, all of these things are coming together let's keep our fingers crossed, the nation doesn't need this capability for the next three or four years because it'll be four years before we've got it all together again where it can actually fight and look after itself for our nation How important is it for the nation to get carrier strike back? I think it's really important. It enables our military, in a joint sense, to have global reach. And we are still, although lots of people don't like saying it, a great nation. We run global shipping from this country. We're the sixth richest country in the world, depending on how you calculate that. Uh, we've got greater investments in every part of the world than any other European nation. We need to look after those. Global stability is important. If we want to go and operate elsewhere in the world, you need carrier strike and carrier capability We're now going to have that, and that is really important. The nation will be really grateful over the next 50 years that we've got that capability. That was Lord West speaking to James Hurst. You know, know, Christopher, whenever I hear people talking about cats, traps and stovals, it makes me smile. I just think of some kind of elaborate board game.
Uh, it, well, the whole thing is an elaborate board game, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's banging on about, well, we've got to have two, we've got to have two. Zambalas would say, we've got to have two. And yet the Defence Ministry said in, on 19th September 2010, oh, well, we may only have one. Cats and traps, catapults and traps. In other words, uh, the conventional takeoff. You're mm. catapulted into the, into the, hopefully into the air, uh, and, and you're, you're captured. Uh, Stovall's short takeoff and vertical landing. In other words, what we used to see with the Harrier jump jet, Indeed. do you remember? That's uh, what it's all about. Eric, um, you not only know the people and the process that's brought about this carrier, in their early days, you probably taught them at Dartmouth. Yeah, I think so. I've, I've actually been up to see the carrier, actually. I went up there. Very impressed? impressed. Yes, and the American admirals who were with me were very impressed as well. That's good they to said, know. They said they, they thought that our approach was actually rather better than theirs <laughs> in, building, really? in building a new generation of aircraft carriers. Absolutely correct, yes. And, and the Navy had to fight tooth and nail to get this carrier, Eric. Very much so. I mean, it was... Dead. I remember when they made a television programme about the Strategic Defence Review the day before it came out. They actually reported that the carrier decision had not been decided upon. But the interesting thing was that once it was decided upon, it was mentioned about the one programme that was mentioned in, in Defence Secretary George Robertson's forward. It was seen as very much the core of the SDR. Mm. And, and, and the programme has been pushed forward. It's been delayed by lots of things. Trying to manage a programme like this has been difficult. It's been a national programme. Uh, there's been in, investment, for example, at Camel Laird's in Birkenhead, which allows them now to engage uh, in oil rig construction. So it hasn't just been nugatory investment to build a ship. It's been built all, all over Britain, uh, most of it in Scotland, actually, where the assembly has taken place, but also mm. in Cornwall. And it's been a great national project, and it's been a, a, a great success. Yes, it's been expensive for the reasons that Alan West has just said, quite rightly. But on the other hand, you get a lot, and you get a very capable vessel. The next question is, how many aircraft is it going to carry? Uh, is it going to be the 436, or it, is there going to be some kind of combined helicopter aircraft? It's far from over. Uh, Christopher? Hey, listen, we've always had, historically, we've always had this problem with aircraft carriers. Uh, go, if you go back, good gracious me, probably into the early 70s, uh, so the Navy said, we're going to have an aircraft carrier. We're designing one even now. And the Treasury said, what do you want an aircraft carrier for? No, you can't have an aircraft carrier. Took it to number 10. Prime Minister said, no, you don't want an aircraft carrier. All those planes and things, no, you don't want that. So do you know what the Navy did? They said, well, actually, we don't want an aircraft carrier. We'll have something we'll call a through-deck cruiser. <laughs> and, so, and so the Treasury said, quite like that. Yeah, you can have a through-deck cruiser. And that was HMS Invincible, wasn't it, Eric? Yes, and, and as soon as it came out, it was being called an aircraft carrier. Uh, and Eric, when was the first time the Navy put aircraft on ships? First, uh, first time it put aircraft on ships was 1913, mm. when uh, HMS Hermes, a cruiser, the headquarters ship of the naval wing of the Royal Flying Corps, was used to play a zeppelin in the naval exercises of that year. Right. Let, let's have an insight now into what might be on board this new aircraft carrier. Ali Gibson's had a look. Standing down in the dry dock, which will very soon be filled with water, is where you get the best sense of just how colossal HMS Queen Elizabeth is taller than Nelson's column and longer than the Houses of Parliament. Weighing 65,000 tonnes and the first aircraft carrier with twin islands or towers, the flight deck has been perfectly designed with the new F-35B Lightning II strike fighter in mind. David Atkinson is from BAE Systems. The first thing you notice is the sheer scale of the flight deck and that's designed to operate the number of aircraft that the Royal Navy and the Air Force wish to operate from here which is a massive step compared to the previous uh, uh, Invincible class of ships. And the second thing you notice is the way that we've really learned a lot of lessons about 
how to um, conduct flying control operations. Yeah. And so you can see up there that the glass bubble that's upon the aft island is specifically designed to really allow the ship to control its air operations and step beyond that's ever been achieved before. On an American equivalent of this carrier, the ship's company would be much larger. But HMS Queen Elizabeth will only have a crew of 679. And that's because innovations in its weaponry have meant streamlining, with machines replacing manpower in some aspects. Commander Steve Lynn has been part of the team overseeing the project. I'd single out the highly mechanised weapon handling system. Uh, and that's the system that we have on board to deliver munitions from our magazines to, uh, to the flight deck with the uh, minimum number of uh, people involved in that process. Uh, but that's just one example of many across the platform where we've uh, embraced automation and innovation uh, to reduce the number of people it takes to operate the platform. Thousands of staff are working around the clock to get the carrier ready for the next phases of her service. She begins sea trials in 2017 and flight trials the year after. Built at six different shipyards across the UK, this project has employed 7,000 people, including graduates like Jennifer McGinley. For someone that's less than two years at university and to have so much experience and to be able to learn from the people that have such a wealth of knowledge on this project, it's a real honour. And to be part of something that's one of the most exciting and biggest engineering projects in the UK, it's like a dream come true for an engineering student. When she is finished, HMS Queen Elizabeth will project force across the world, able to carry out everything from airstrikes in operations to humanitarian assistance. She's cost billions to build, but the Royal Navy say she is worth it, giving them back the capability that an aircraft carrier provides. And it's also about investment, with the Queen Elizabeth and her sister ship, the Prince of Wales, able to serve for up to 50 years. Ali Gibson reporting from Rosyth. Um, Eric Grove, yes. the, the ship's been named with a bottle of whiskey. Why? So I gather, well, I think it's, uh, well, it's, I suppose it's a bit of a sop, a sop to Scotland, isn't it, really? Hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, in a sense, this is quite political because, after all, it's making the point that, you know, do, do you really want to... S- do you really want to stop having British warships made made in Scotland? Because the main reason they are made in Scotland is because of the existence of Great Britain. And if Great Britain breaks up, what's going to happen to happen to the future? If I could correct something I just said, the first tests of aeroplanes from British warships were just at the end of 1911 and into 1912, but they weren't really deployments of aeroplanes. All right, thanks, Eric. So what kind of whiskey will it be, Christopher? Jura. <laughs> will it? From, from Isla. Has to be. Yes, what a waste. Tell us what we can expect tomorrow. That's an awful thing to say. Slap wrists. No, it's not an awful thing to say. (laughs) I mean, you know... Because it goes into the sea. Is that what happens exactly? Yes, it goes into the sea. And and the other thing is you could have a sip and you could say, well, that'll do, that'll do. And that is really what you're doing in this. This aircraft will do. It's an interesting thing carrying on with Eric has said. Mm. And that is that if there should be independence... Uh, where is the only place in the United Kingdom at the moment that you can actually repair one of these ships? It's, it, it is in Scotland, isn't it's it? It's in Scotland. Mm. It's in the, in, the, in the docks of there at the moment. Um, tomorrow is, is, is not just a very royal occasion. Um, it's probably the last major warship of this size the United Kingdom will ever build. Certainly for, certainly for its navy. Certainly if Scotland goes independent, that's well, for sure. <laughs> well, well, whether they, they always could build them in France, of course. Well, Prince could, of Wales will be built, of course. Prince well, of Wales is going to be built afterwards. It, mm. it's, it's building alongside. Um, and I just wonder if, uh, if we'll ever go to sea under the White Ensign. But that's the important thing. This is probably one of the biggest occasions ever. It's the biggest warship the Royal Navy has built in modern times. And that's quite a, quite a thing to discover. And how many ships go with it, Eric? 
Well, it varies. I mean, it, the, the whole idea of the thi- uh, of the programme was it would form part of a combined force. I mean, you'd, have, you'd, you'd expect something like eight or nine vessels to act as a as a, a as a strike group. That's what the Americans do with their carrier carrier groups. But but they aren't just there to escort. The whole thing is a synergistic fighting force. The aircraft provide the reach or part of the reach. The surface ships, if they're American can provide land attack missiles mm. other ships defend the carrier from anti-submarine well from submarine threats and air threats so it's all a, it's all a synergistic force and the question is and this raises questions do we really have enough frigates and destroyers if we're operating in a national context to provide a decent escort yeah, yeah, hang on a minute eric hang on a minute let's, let's, let's build this up a bit <laughs> when that ship is launched she'll be one of the best and not that's not just being sort of uh, sort of popular, but she would be one of the best carrier-operated uh, ships in the world. Absolutely. Uh, the, the air crews are actually uh, testing and flying the F-35 Bravo. Are you, you going to be there tomorrow, Christopher? Uh, absolutely. Ah. And now the second thing which is important, don't forget this is only part of it. There is another ship which is the most advanced anti-aircraft, anti-missile ship in the world anywhere in the world, which is the Type 45. There are six of them. Another big success. These things, these Type 45s, can take on missiles the size of cricket balls, yeah, and knock them out. Wow. Now, no other Navy can do that. So let's hear it for the Navy instead of just knocking it. Okay. uh, And control 180,000 square miles of airspace (laughs) as well. And that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and Professor Eric Grove. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And before we go, Christopher, we've got our glasses full for HMS Queen Elizabeth. Let's uh, let's do a little toast. And the Royal Navy. (laughs) Cheers. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.